The science fiction fantasy of machine consciousness seems to be moving towards reality. In 1921, a Google engineer was fired after claiming that the chatbot he'd been testing it was a large language model chatbot was sentient. And last year, the chief scientist of the company behind ChatGPT tweeted that some of the most cutting-edge AI networks might be slightly conscious, but like Mike of Mosgill. So what would it mean for humans if AI technology became conscious? And how would we know? Computer scientist Brian Christian is the author of The Alignment Problem. We spoke to him a while ago about that. He's also written a book called The Most Human Human. He's part of the AI Policy and Governance Working Group at the Institute for Advanced Study. And he joins us again now. Hi, Brian. Welcome back. Hi, Kim. It's a pleasure. Um, I, this, let's just talk about that Google employee for a moment. Do you know what made him believe that the chatbot was sentient? Yes, this was uh, a direct result of his chat message conversations uh, with the system, which was called Lambda. And he was asking Lambda these very soul-searching questions about, you know, what is what is its experience like? What is it like to be a chatbot and so forth? And what he got back was coherent and cogent enough that he ended up deciding, and he's a he's a person of faith. So his attitude was, well, if it's telling me that it's having this inner experience, then who am I to tell God, you know, where God can and cannot put a soul? And so he uh, he gave it the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I um, I wonder what he thinks now. I mean, I I don't I don't know the details of that story. Did he think, yeah, I was wrong, or does he think I know something they don't? To the best of my knowledge, I think he's someone who trusts his instincts, trusts his that gut feeling that he has. Um, you know, I should say, I, I don't think that uh, the evidence that he saw was persuasive, at least from my perspective. But he's someone who gets that inkling that, you know, there there might be some someone or something on the other side of that conversation. And uh, and he's inclined to trust that gut feeling that he has. And so I don't think that uh, really changed for him. So now, a group of computer scientists and neuroscientists and philosophers have come up with a checklist of attributes, 14 criteria that might indicate consciousness. Have you That's had a look at that? Yes, they uh, they published, I think, an 88-page uh, paper. It hasn't uh, gone through peer review yet, but it has already started uh, making waves in uh, both the philosophy circles and as well uh, neuroscience and computer science. Um, and so I think we're, we're really at the beginning. I think this is a significant document. I think this really marks a milestone in terms of the coming together of those different communities. You know, there's an entire you know, philosophical literature on what does it mean to have a mind? What are the, you know, the, the key attributes of consciousness? Uh, there's a, a neuroscience literature on can we locate, you know, the structures within the brain that actually give rise to those conscious experiences? You know, are they in the front of the brain? Are they in the back of the brain? 
Um, and increasingly, we now have computational systems, in many cases, explicitly modeled after uh, certain aspects of human neuroscience. And we can start to ask these questions of whether they have the requisite attributes um, that we suspect might give rise to consciousness in a human brain. So I think, you know, we're, we're just at the very beginning, but it strikes me that this is, uh, you know, truly one of the one of the most significant questions there is really. And uh, I think these these disciplines are now really starting to talk to each other in a, in a very deep way. But as you suggest, there's no there's no consensus on on how we describe consciousness in ourselves. There's no there's no consensus on which theory accurately describes the biological basis of consciousness. So we're kind of fishing in the dark here. Well, I think it's important to explore the implications of these different competing theories. Um, it might be the case, um, for example, that the theories have enough overlap of agreement where we might be able to say that a particular system is conscious, even if we don't know which theory of consciousness is correct. Um, and so, you know, we're. I think it's important to start to to play these arguments out, even as you know, simultaneously we are seeing real progress being made on the neuroscientific side of consciousness, where um, there has been, over the last year or two, uh, these so-called adversarial collaborations between some of the people that hold these different contesting views um, to look at, okay, what, what would our prediction be if our theory is right? Where do we expect to see brain activity in such and such a situation? And so we're, we're beginning to... Um, you know, find some evidence that is starting to fall in favor of some theories and against others. It does occur to me that if we're looking for consciousness in our own image, we might be narrowing the field a bit. I mean, it's entirely possible, isn't it, that some entirely different form of consciousness arises? Yes, I think that's an extremely important point. And so I think an attitude of uh, humility goes a long way here. And from my perspective, I think that humility should be grounded in a, you know, a, a frank accounting of the history of at least Western thought in terms of the nature of consciousness of the soul. Um, philosophers from Descartes all the way back to Aristotle have grappled with this question of what makes human beings, you know, special and unique. And they approached it largely by writing off everything that other animals can do. And we've seen in the animal rights movement starting, you know, approximately with Peter Singer in the 1970s, um, a, a much more developed appreciation for just how complex the inner life of many animals really is. And so that was something that the philosophers had wrong for about uh, you know two and a half millennia, and we're now just coming around. And so I think having that same, you know, uh, modesty about our our claims, I think, is very important. Yeah. What's it like to be a bat? What's it like to be a large language model chatbox? <laughs> exactly. Um, none of the the AIs say the people who thought up these 14 criteria, none of the AIs ticked more than a handful of boxes and none is a strong candidate for consciousness. But the 
it would be trivial, says El Mosnino, to design all these features into an AI. The reason no one has done so is that it's not clear they would be useful for tasks. What does that mean? Yeah, so, you know, as you say, a lot of today's AI systems tick one or more of the boxes um, of of these theories of consciousness, and none none gets them all. But you can certainly imagine combining these different systems. So, for example, you know, we have large language models that operate in a purely textual uh, capacity. But we also know, for example, that it is well within our current capabilities to make them what's called multimodal. Um, and indeed, OpenAI has a version of GPT-4 that can process not just text, but also images. Um, this is not available to the public, but we know that it exists internally at OpenAI. Um, and so you can imagine essentially bolting on these different capacities, right? So taking a language model that appears to have a certain amount of you know, information processing ability and giving it senses as, you know, if you will, giving it a visual sense. Or you can imagine putting it into some sort of physical body rather than just having it operating, you know, in a data center. You could put a copy of, let's say, GPT-4 in a robot that was, you know, in a specific embodied experience. Uh, you could potentially give it the ability to move that body. And now we're talking about the criterion of agency. Um, and so at the moment, there is no compelling commercial reason uh, to do that, uh, but it's certainly within the uh, capabilities of what we have at this point from an engineering standpoint. So this um, is the idea so of embodied cognition, that, that because we're not just a mind, we have bodies and we have senses. And so if you put a large language model computer in some kind of sensory body, then you might be approaching intelligence, a GI. Yeah, I think certainly it's one of the one of the things that feels very constitutive of our conscious experience, right? Is not not merely that we kind of think rationally, but that we we see things. Right. We we know what the color blue looks like. We can imagine our you know loved one's face in our mind. Um, and so certainly extending those sorts of visual modalities um, starts to suggest, you know, it's it starts to remove some of the barriers, at least um, for what might make these systems conscious. Did you say there was no commercial imperative at this point to to make embodied models? Um, I think it depends. Uh, you can imagine a self-driving car as a kind of embodied, um, you know, AI product. Yeah. Um, but as far as language models go and, um, you know, people have talked for many decades about this sort of domestic robot that would, you know, clean your house in a sophisticated way. Obviously, yeah. we already have Roombas, but they're not very sophisticated. Um, and people have imagined companionship um, that, you know, elder care, for example, might be done by these very intelligent robots and so forth. Um, I think we're just not there yet. And so we haven't yet seen, um, you know, the sort of 
venture capital kind of bridge over into those use cases yet. But from my perspective, it feels really just like a matter of time. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought there's surely somebody toiling in some basement somewhere trying to do that. I think you've got a lot of, uh, you know, PhD students tinkering away. You've got some, uh, you know, would-be entrepreneurs trying to make it happen. And uh, there's been an incredible, uh, incredible upsurge in the amount of venture capital that's going into AI companies, broadly speaking. Um, and so I think people are are trying to essentially throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. Um, and for now, the biggest advance has been in these language models that can do these textual sorts of tasks. I think the next step for that is going to be uh, a form of agency that is embedded not in a physical body, but in your desktop. So a system that can browse the web, looking at whatever is on your computer screen and maybe clicking buttons and so forth. And so that's a very limited kind of software form of embodiment, um, but it starts to have the, uh, you know, the, the first you know, morsels of agency. It can take in perceptual input and then take an action. If the devil offered you the opportunity to create a fully sentient machine, would you take it? <laughs> Knowing it was the devil making the offer, I, you know, I'd, I'd immediately want to know what the. What I would know that was the leading question, wasn't I? I don't know why I made it the devil. I was thinking about. A Faustian bargain, and clearly yeah. there is some kind of danger involved. But just say, if someone gave you the opportunity to say, here you are, tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and you'll be able to make a fully conscious chatbot, what would you say? I mean, there's, an, you know, it's hard to think through the, the entire ramifications of that, but the temptation would be immense. I mean, I have to say with, you know, with my philosophy of mind hat on or my cognitive science hat on, um, there is really this holy grail, which is, you know, we, we want to get to the bottom of what I think is the, the central mystery of existence, which is, you know, how does inert matter give rise to the actual experience of being in the world? I mean, I think that is the foundation really of almost any ethical system is that we we care about, you know, human beings and puppies and so forth in a way we don't care about copper that we mine out of a mountain or, or whatever. Um, it's the foundation of our ethics. It's the foundation, obviously, of our, you know, lived experience and our sense of self. So, um, you know, for me, there's a certain giddy feeling that we might actually be on the precipice of, of really... Uh, making inroads to what I see as one of the central mysteries of, of life itself. Don't you think we're more driven by the idea of getting to grips with ourselves? What makes us? What is intelligence? What is consciousness, sentience? What is personality? All those things. Yeah, I mean, I think there is, there's certainly an egocentrism or a, a species centrism. And as I say, um, you know, this runs through all of Western philosophy. You know, Aristotle was really very focused on what makes human experience so important in a way that, from my perspective, I think from a 21st century perspective, he was far too quick to write off um, the experiences of other mammals, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, there is. There is kind of a self-centeredness. And from that perspective, I think it might be um, 
genuinely humbling in a good way to share, essentially share the world with another conscious entity that is quite alien to ourselves. Um, it might uh, fundamentally change our position in, in the universe in a way that I think could be good, assuming, uh, assuming it's, we don't get taken over or lose control of, of civilization or so forth. Hi. I think just to, to, <laughs> to right. feel like more of an ecosystem of mind rather than, you know, uh, on it fully alone in charge or something could be a good thing, but yeah. it's, uh, it's harrowing. It is harrowing and nothing's completely good. And this is so, this would be so enormous that it might be very good, but it would also be very bad. Certainly, I think it has to be undertaken with incredible care. Um, and but do so, you have confidence that that's going to be the case? No, I wish I did. I mean, to be to be quite honest with you, um, you know, I'm I'm extremely concerned about the ethics and safety implications of artificial intelligence. I think there is a real gap right now between the shared sense that many of us have that we need to regulate this technology and the general uh, lack of clarity, I think, that many of us have on exactly what kind of regulation uh, ought to exist. And so that, that to me is certainly nervous making, uh, given the pace, there's the sheer pace of progress. Just as a matter of interest, I don't know whether you caught up with Yuval Noah Harari's argument that the new generative AI tools will change the course of history by, among other things, convincing us to vote for particular politicians by, you know, more persuasive disinformation. That's a kind of a, a way station en route to full sentience. But are you, are you worried about that? Um, that's, that's on the list <laughs> of things that I worry about. <laughs> um, I think, you know, ever since you know, civilization has existed. There have been people trying to influence the behavior of other people. Um, and so what we're seeing is the potential for these kinds of bespoke forms of persuasion, right? We could pick an individual person and have a model that's tailored to giving that exact person the messages that they want to hear. Um, and yeah, I think that's a bit concerning, but I think there's also at the same time a kind of social immune response, if you will, that if it comes to be generally understood that social media can't be trusted, you know, if uh, Twitter and Reddit and so forth are so overrun with bots that are so convincingly human-like, um, then I think there will broadly be a move away from those platforms. Whether that will happen uh, quickly enough is, I think, a very valid question. Um, so it might be the case that uh, there are one or two elections that get decided by this sort of technology before essentially the the human uh, you know psychological defense mechanism has time to kick in. So I think that is uh, quite concerning. The AI Policy and Governance Working Group at the Institute of Advanced Study, of which you are a part, recently submitted a set of recommendations to the U.S. National Telecommunications and Information Administration. Are they relevant to this discussion? What are they? Yeah, I mean, so we were uh, we were part of this process of 
the U.S. government soliciting input on essentially what sorts of regulations um, ought to be made. And so, you know, we're we're just one voice um, that responded to that. Uh, but we made a number of points. And I think one thing that we called out is that there's uh, a, a lack of institutional capacity for auditing these systems. Um, and so one of the things that we really wanted to think about is how can the government incentivize the creation of essentially an auditing industry? And so one regulatory intervention that could achieve that would be if, in this case, the U.S. government, anytime it provisions an AI system, it also provisions an auditor that will audit that system. Um, this is the kind of thing that over the medium term will start to develop essentially an industry of auditing AI systems. And that's the kind of thing, you know, that, that's one of many things that we need. But I think that's the kind of thing that would make me sleep a little bit sounder at night. That is our aim, to make you sleep more soundly at night, Brian. <laughs> Brian Christian, who's a computer scientist and author of The Alignment Problem.